them jewels fast. Run in, run them jewels fast. Run in, run in, run in, run in, run in, run in, fuck this slow move. Run in, 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 run How's everybody doing this week? We're just once again talking to interesting people and having a fun time while 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 doing it. This week's guest is actually my brother-in-law, Ernest Leif Johnson. We get into politics. We talk about his life story, why a white guy needs a Malcolm X tat tattoo, and we get into political music, where it all started, where it began, to mid '90s stuff, to modern day stuff. And just um, the intro song this week is Run the Jewels featuring Zach Delarocha, Close Your Eyes. I'm re- really digging that track track right right now. Um, a little bit about Ernest. I've known him for 15 years. He works out like a fiend. He's a, he's a big, big boy. He's a vegetarian. He is a thought-provoking speaker. He had a lot to say about the political climate at Bordeaux and... We even talk about Vanilla Ice and MC Hammer for uh, for a little bit. But what's been going on 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 with me this week? Watching less and less WWE late or lately. More of more of a time thing. I think it's uh, watching like eight to fifteen hours a week is too much. I'm not not really engaged in the uh, product right here now. I I still love love wrestling, but it's not a. Uh, I honestly, I'd rather go go to indie show late, or lately. More fun. Just thinking about ac- action figures right right now, and how much I've I've been enjoying the cast iron iron ones from the uh, new Star Wars series, Rogue Rogue One. They hold their positions great. They don't move. You can set them up yeah, up up awesome. And right now, I'm actually recording this on Valentine's Day, so I just want to say Happy Valentine's Day, sweetie. Here's the uh, conversation with Ernest, guys, and hope you 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 enjoy it. Thanks. Good morning, good evening, good night. This is Gilmy on Gilmy Talks again. I have an interview to Bordeaux. Uh, my guest today would be Ernest Johnson. That's right. His last name is actually Johnson. <laughs> Twenty seconds in, and I got a dick joke. This is great. I'm a dick joke. Sweet. Yep. Um, I've known Ernest for what now, 15, 15 years? Eight, 15 going on 16. Yep. Uh, first met him when he, my sister ran away to California to hang out with him. Uh, he's actually my brother-in-law and today's topic will be mostly political, political music, modern, modern times, um, just all the crazy shit that's going on. And he's actually my favorite American, believe it or not, <laughs> I like one. Um... My brother Lars is cool too. Oh yeah, he is. But also, he he looks at at, at me funny. Like, what the hell is this? He guy has bad like? eyesight. <laughs> Anyways, like <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I have known Ernest for a long time, and he's a pretty interesting dude. He has some interesting uh, ideas, and I use the word interesting a whole lot. Edit that shit out, Justin. Okay. Interessante. He, yeah. A couple things about Ernest. He is very involved in politics. He's 
He's been living in Canada for... 15 years. 15, 15 minus, years. Minus a year and a half in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, minus a year and a half when he went back back to California to help out his help help out, out his dad. Um, I do have to add that my family um, in California are, are very much immigrants. My mom was born in, in Bogota, Colombia, uh, in the midst of a, a civil war that actually just ended this year. Um, yeah, actually, I have I work work with a couple Colombians or have, and they're kind of kind of excited about that. They yeah, no, know, it, they don't know what's going to happen to hap, happen next. They're very well throughout most of Latin America. There's a huge history of it's it's very different. Latin America is very different here politically, um, and there's a huge context of very strong people's oriented labor movements in particular that have been essentially squashed and coerced um, by foreign economic interests. I mean, the most famous example is probably Pinochet in Chile in 1971, in which there was a democratically elected socialist-leading government that was essentially overthrown by a U.S.-funded military coup that installed the dictatorship of uh, Agustin Pinochet. That's probably the most famous example. But that kind of thing has been going on in Latin America for 150 years. And um, entering a time in which there is not strife um, manufactured by that or the remnant fact, the remnant derivatives of that is actually a, a very much a new day for Colombia, you know, for the land of my mother's birth. And it's actually quite exciting. Um, I'm not as intimately read on Colombian politics or anything like that, but um, the, oh. I, I can see why people would be interested. Um, so yeah, that's good. Um, I actually mentioned my mother's place of birth because also my father, his ancestry is from Norway. Um, my So my mom has Irish-American and Mestizaje ancestry um, from, from Colombia. Um, and uh, her father was from Wisconsin. I never met her parents. Uh, they died when my mother was a child. Um, and then my father's ancestry is from Norway, and they they emigrated to the United States in the 19-teens um, and changed their name from Johansson to Johnson. Um, and my father's ethnicity is that of formerly known as Laplander or Sami, who are a minority ethnicity in, in Scandinavia, as defined by the UN as Aboriginal people of Scandinavia, which I think those two backgrounds, plus the fact that I grew up in two very culturally diverse communities, um, one being Oakland, California, which when I lived there was largely African-American. The, the, Oakland's been gentrified quite a bit, um, and the demographics are significantly different now, but um, I really value that experience of growing up there as well as um, I... I spent some time in my teen years living in a community called Winters, California, which was, I would say, roughly half Mexicano or or, or Latino and half white, um, with a few other you know people in there, um, and I value those experiences a great deal. I am conversant in Spanish. I I, I speak a little bit of an Ashnabaman, very little, but I I think I have a knowledge where I can recognize it. I don't know any Scandinavian languages. My father's family assimilated very hard, um, trying to be as white and American as possible. My grandfather actually fought in World War II, um, Leif Johnson, John Leif, young Leif Johnson, um, in the European theater. And my dad was a, or is, but um, was a dirty hippie Vietnam War protester. And I'm proud of them both, frankly. I'm very proud of them both.
my paternal grandmother was named, uh, nickname was Pinky. Uh, she had MS and went blind in her 20s. And she became an activist for blind people. She was involved heavily in the National Federation of the Blind. Um, uh, and by the time she died, she was, uh, well, she was blind since her 20s, but she was paralyzed from the neck down and had had both her legs amputated. But she was quite a, uh, quite a strong person. And I really, I think she's actually one of the more influential people in my life in terms of my young life and the way I viewed the way I viewed women of strength and which kind of brings me to where I'm at with, uh, you know, my, my marriage to Justin's sister. Uh, um, she is, she's not unlike, I mean, she's not very much like any of the women I would have uh, been with um, prior to meeting her online. <laughs> um, I mean, I was heavily involved in athletics and that was track and field and cross country. I, I competed collegiately, and I played a lot of baseball. I played baseball as an adult as well. Um, um, I'm just going to give you a little physical description of Ernest. He's one of the most interesting, <laughs> interesting looking dudes I know. Um, he's about six. I'm six foot even. Say six feet, foot, foot even. So I'm a little bit taller than him, but that's all. All I got on the guy. <laughs> he can run marathons. He can. You're benching what now for? Um, my heaviest bench ever is 410, although it wasn't a very clean effort. See, he says this, and I can, I, I can't, you, I throw my back out sometimes lifting up a freaking kid. Um, <laughs> I guess it depends on the kid. Eh, James is not heavy. <laughs> <laughs> he's 10, but he's a skinny dude. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he is, and also one thing that I got to ask him about. Why, why the Malcolm X, X attack? That's a good question. I have never actually asked you about this, but he is the only white guy I know. Well, and he's showing me the tattoo right now. Okay. Um, because when I met this guy, I came in... My trying, tattoos scare the white people. Yeah. I came in, I tried to actually hate Ernest from the get-go. It's Just, not possible. Well... Um, let's <laughs> not go there. <laughs> um, because I was mad at my sister... For what she did at the time, we've made up many years ago. Now we're we're on we're on good good uh, good terms. We're sympathetical. Yeah, um, it just when I first met him, they come to my work. <laughs> I remember for one this. thing. Don't wait for me to get home. Oh, hey, hey, I'm I'm I, I shove Ernest out of the way, and I kind of shove Ernest out of the way just to give my sister a big hug. He's try he tries to be in the nicest guy. I'm like, yeah, fuck off. Um, and then I just hug hug my sister who I haven't seen in months. Who I stole. Yeah. He now, it, this is how I was feeling at the time, not thinking that, oh, my sister has her own mind and that she's a very independent person. And will she be is what, very much what, so. Whatever, whatever she wants, she does. That's all how she's always been, even when she bashed Dan in a fucking head with, with a pop can. <laughs> I still, still remember that. She knocked him out cold. He probably um, deserved it. But. Oh, yeah, he did. But um, <laughs> uh, they were young and uh, fighting and she, I learned really quick. Once you piss off Chantel, run. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, Chantel being my sister. I never actually mentioned any of my family. I got one brother, one sister. There we go. And yeah. I forget where we're at. I lost my... I oh, know. you asked me about the Malcolm yes. X tattoo. The Malcolm X tattoo. Okay. okay, so you asked me about the Malcolm X tattoo. And um, 
some people find it off-putting or even confusing. And a little bit, yeah. A little bit. But that's okay. I mean... Because it's me, I have no ink. I have which a lot is kind of surprising. Of, I have a lot of holes, but no ink. Yeah, I took out most of my piercings mm-hmm. when I turned 30. Well... Yeah. My one well, other piercing. You, you did have a belly button, right? Yeah, I did. <laughs> um, yeah, I took I'm it out. I'm sorry. I'm a, I'm a very liberal guy, but dudes with belly button rings, I just don't get. I know, I know you, you explained why you do it, but I'm just like... Well, yeah. I took it out <laughs> when I got a little older. I was like, you know what? I don't really need yeah. this anymore. I don't know. People grow. People get older. People change. So the Malcolm X tattoo. Um, yeah. There's a short answer and a long answer. Um, the short answer is that um, good narratives make people who are tied to the pejorative narratives uncomfortable. The long answer is that um, it, when I was growing up, there was a, always a large search for identity. You know, I've got a mom from South America, um, a father's family, paternal ancestry that's from Scandinavia, and Aboriginal from Scandinavia, although that time I, I didn't really engage with it as such. But there was a lot of inherent contradictions. Um, and then I grew up in a largely African-American community, um, and, which is an experience that I value for multiple reasons. Um, uh, why? Well, I'll get to that. Okay. And it's actually the answer ties in significantly. Okay. But basically, society is governed by stories, by narratives. And the narratives about, you know, the, the pejorative or predominant narratives about... Um, who we, and who is we, who fits into we, but who we are in Canada and the United States are relatively similar. And uh, that's kind of an aside point. I don't think Canada is as different from the U.S. as it likes to think it is. Although there are differences. I wouldn't minimize that either. But nonetheless, there's a governance by narratives. You know, um, liberal democracy governed by laws and, and freedom and, and, and all those things, you know, make... The country a good place to live but underneath that are the narratives of the people who were anyone who was cast aside for the sake of the predominant narrative um, both the u.s and canada are built upon the conquest and genocide of native peoples both the u.s and canada have a tremendous amount of wealth historically that is attached to the slave trade and i know canadians will often point out that uh, slavery you know wasn't prevalent in canada but elements of the slave trade made the wealth of the colonies or, or territories that became Canada part of the equation. And so you have these predominant narratives that implicitly have to justify um, genocide and slavery and colonization. So what happens to the people whose identities themselves are of the groups that are colonized and enslaved and have genocide committed upon them? And there's a few different ways that can go. Um, Edward Said uh, wrote Orientalism. He was a Palestinian who actually spent most of his life in New York City, I believe, although I'm not 100% on that. Um, he died in, I believe, 2006, 2007. And in the book Orientalism, he wrote about how the other is a construct of the colonizer. The other is um, an identity for the colonized group that suits the need of the, the colonizing power. And that identity justifies or naturalizes or at least explains the subjugation of that group. And the pejorative predominant narratives of our wider societies have historically done that as well. And this leads me to my Malcolm X tattoo, in, in short. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. And speaking about 
African diaspora who ended up in the Americas upon slavery, within the mechanisms of the institution of chattel slavery. And that, to me, was a linchpin description of rejecting narratives that, that justify inequity and justify colonization, genocide, and, and, and such. And, and that, that, that's kind of a condensed version of the answer, but that has a lot to do with it. Um, and what Malcolm X did in his life is he went and explored how rejecting those narratives, he didn't keep it as such, but rejecting those narratives looked. You know, when he was a young man, his uh, father was killed by a white supremacist group, and then he and his siblings were taken from the fam from his mother uh, by the the equivalent of CIS or Protective Services. And he grew up in foster care in white foster homes, and he experienced um, mascot syndrome, where um, where he as a young black man was essentially treated like a puppy. There's a very famous scene in the autobiography of Malcolm X, um, which became the Spike Lee movie. Um, but the autobiography, as told Alex Haley, in which he is with uh, a white school teacher in somewhere in Michigan, and um, he says to him, "You know, what do you want to be?" And Malcolm says, "A lawyer, a doctor." And the school teacher says, "Well, that's no job for a nigger. You're good with your hands. You could be a carpenter. People like you. They give you work." And that's because the teacher's mind frame was, was shaped by that same narrative that justifies mistreatment and inequity. And young Malcolm internalized those messages. Um, and in his young life, he became a hustler and drug dealer in Detroit, or, well, near Detroit, I believe in Lansing. And then eventually he fled, after he got in some trouble, he fled to uh, Harlem and was a hustler, a numbers runner in, in Harlem. And in that time, he was buying into the narrative, implicit narrative, of the limits for him that were imposed by the discourses of inequity. Um, he comments in his book that one of his cohorts in Harlem could have been a mathematical genius because he had the ability to um, memorize numbers, but the, the roles prescribed for him by the predominant narratives limited him to, well, being a really good numbers runner. And then he gets caught and goes to prison and discovers the Nation of Islam. And that's kind of the, one of the most famous phases of Malcolm X's life, where, you know, the white, peop, white man is the devil. And he kind of takes this opposite extreme of, of um, rejecting the predominant narrative completely and, and, and kind of turning it on, on its ear 100% completely. And then later on in his life, he discovers flaws within the Nation of Islam and and I'll speak to his conversion of Islam, actually, as an aside. When he converted to Islam, he saw Islam as, um, as a counter to kind of North American Christianity in the sense that that North American Christianity was often used to justify slavery. And, and I mean, in fairness, also used to justify resistance to slavery, depending on the community you were in. But he converted to Islam to kind of reject that narrative, and that kind of is, is representative of complete rejection. Then he gets out of prison, he becomes a very strong minister within the nation, and he um, eventually discovers, long story short, discovers some kind of inconsistencies within the nation of Islam. Himself goes to Mecca and discovers that, and I'm going to use some of my words to describe it, but, but that all men are brothers, and, uh, and it's the narratives, and, and, and that's my word, but the, the institutions in in, in, in his context, the United States, but I would extrapolate that to be the, 
the wider Western colonized societies that create this understanding of race that prescribes inequity. So that process, that dynamic process of constantly peeling your onion, onion, to use a metaphor, and constantly breaking down these narratives is something that I deeply admired and was very striking to me at a young age when I first read his autobiography. So that's an answer as to why I have a tattoo of Malcolm X. I fully, I got it when I was really young. I was 19, but I, I fully recognize the potential for myself being unaware of cultural appropriation when I got it. And I recognize that that in and of itself is problematic. Um, but it's also a huge kind of uh, landmark for me, so to speak. Um, so yeah, is that a sufficient answer? Yep, it is. Cool. No, because I've always, I've always wondered about it and yeah. I just never asked. So that's um, the answer. Yeah, because as I, as I have dis- dis- described you before, to a couple, to a couple people, I have a massive, massive brother-in-law. He's white, <laughs> ginger, and sports a Malcolm X tat. Tat. Um, you you can't really get more, much more uh, interesting than near that. Yeah, uh, I've got a bunch of tattoos, and oh, yeah, yeah. I... See, reason I don't have any is because once I start, I won't stop. Oh, I want more, and, <laughs> and the reality is that is that if I got all the tattoos I want, well. I, I don't know that I would be able to meet the obligation to, you know, I don't know, feed my kids. Yeah. But, uh, so that's that's a factor. But I've got a bunch. Although, I've been called uh, fake tatted because you can't see it when I'm, can't really see safe but one when I'm dressed uh, professionally for work. Because, hey, we all got to work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's certain stigmas with tattoos still, which is slowly going by yeah. to the wayside. In about 50 years, nobody will give a shit if you walk in. And then it'll be more kind of rebellious if, not to have ink. Yeah. If you don't walk in with a, if you walk in with a split tongue, spacers, 20, 20 eyebrow piercings, and people won't even look at you twice. Yeah. It's just the, or the way it's there going, right? Yeah. Actually, I'm describing the guy I, who served me at Hot Topic yesterday. <laughs> I didn't even... Sounds like you were well served. Yeah. I don't know no. what to say. Nice to guy. I, I didn't even notice until after the effect. I'm like, wait a minute. That guy, I can put my put, put my wallet through his ears. Does that... <laughs> that, that I've never thought of that. I could put my wallet through his ears. Nice. No, it was weird. He, he didn't have the round ones. He had those, like, those... Oblong? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had yeah. those those in, in about three inches long. I'm just like, I'll put my wallet through there. And I was like, that's interesting. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, what else? Wanted to talk a little bit about uh, modern political music. Modern political music. Or nice. just political music in, in general. Like, myself, I'm a huge fan of Rage Against the Machine. Actually, lately, I've been really enjoying Tom Morello's solo, solo stuff. The Night Watchmen got. stuff? Yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff. It just, um, it's such a different thing than what Wade Rage was. It took a little bit for me to, me, it, it was a grower, not a, not a, a shower for, for me. You know an album that grows on you after you listen mm-hmm, to it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where Rage Against the Machine was, I put it in, in, put the CD in. Yes, kids, I still own, own CDs. Uh, put the CD in, <laughs> so turn, turn, turn it on, and this was blasted away by by it. For I remember the first time I I actually heard it. Mm-hmm. Me too. It's just like, what is this? 
Robbie and Cantar de la Yes, Rage Against the Machine. Like, life-changingly good for me. Um, I actually, in university, I, I would kind of dissect lyrics and, and use that to write kind of papers about, well, politics and history, indigenous history and such. And that was something I did, you know, referencing like uh, People of the Sun, where the first verse is about colonization and encounter of um, indigenous peoples of Mexico and Central America with the Spaniards. And then um, contrasting and comparing and really making a very strong analog in the second verse about the experiences of Mestizo Chicanos in L.A. Um, there's a reference to the Zoot Suit Riots, um, which were... Uh, which was a period in which uh, Mexicanos or Chicanos in, in L.A. were targeted by um, white naval officers uh, for communal abuse, essentially. And, and um, there's just a wealth of uh, really, really good information, very powerfully delivered in, in you know, Zach LaRocca's lyrics. Um, but yeah, um, political music today... Uh, it's funny you mentioned the Night Watchman stuff being a departure from Rage, and I actually, the way I engage with it, I don't see it as a significant departure, because the way I engage is with the stories told and with the yeah. with the lyrics. And there's, I mean, thematically, there's a lot of similarity. I mean, Tom Morello sings in kind of a a uh, a, a, a unrefined baritone, yeah. I guess. He has in the Night Watchman stuff, he uses very little editing. It's one track, one take. He's yeah. singing, and, singing and playing at the same time, which is not... Usually, most of it's acoustic, or a lot of it is, too. Yeah. Yeah, um, but the way I engage is much more with the themes lyrically, and then I see the music as supporting that. And so, I, I mean, so my experience with it is quite different. Like, I love Rage Against the Machine and the, and the heaviness and the, the you know, the the music that is a huge part of inspiring the um, vitriolic response that the music gets is quite powerful and quite wonderful really i love it i mean it's it's i'll give my kind of top five or six list of musical acts that i enjoy in a second but um uh that the, the heaviness of the music and the instrumentation is not where i first engage it's the meaning in, yeah. in the lyrics and, and where for myself i was first blown away by the music because at the time it was a grunge heavy thing mm -hmm. yeah, and, and there's an element of grunge in the music yeah, yeah. It, it was very grunge heavy. It was um, like I've I've always had a musician's ear, and Rage was the first. Like Tom Morello was probably my biggest in, influence on my guitar playing, hands down, because his is the first stuff I sat down for eight or nine hours and just plugged away at it. Nice. Kept going, learned it. I can play a bit more Rage songs than anything else. And because of those, I learned how to solo. I learned how to play outside the box. Get away from the twelve, the twelve-step pentatonic scale. Just kind of back to "Bulls on Parade" is my go-to song. Mm -hmm. um, just because. If you want to rock hard, kids, go to F sharp. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just, just out of nowhere. Like um, used to, be, used to play with this guy, Mike, Mike Williams. I know he actually listens to this. So hi, Mike. Um, and when I would just. We would just play acoustic wood together, and we're just sitting there. Okay, what do you what do you want to play? How about this? And I just start doing the power chords. He starts head 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 banging, just it's just fun. And it was just I don't know why that band has affected me so much. I've never been a huge political guy. I know where I stand. I know I've rallied. I've I've done a a very green political leanings. I'm still registered with the Green Party in the United States. Yep. 
But there's something about that band just uh, gets a visceral response. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's very much earned. Um, I think that when I was younger, um, my, my two favorite musical acts were first Public Enemy. The first music I ever bought was, uh, was Fear of a Black Planet and It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back and Apocalypse 91. Those, those albums were, well, I had them cassette and CD. Yes, I'm old enough to have had cassettes, motherfucker. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, if you're born in the, well, you weren't born in the 70s. Yeah, you were. 79. No, 80. 80. Shit, man. Hey, I, hey. <laughs> Can I swear on this? Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yes. Darn it. Swore. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's actually a Podbeam explicit. I have it under because sometimes it just happens. And well, it's more genuine. I'm not editing people. I'm not taking away anything they say. My editing, I just take out the ums, ahs. That's about it. Um, uh. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, and. So, just, yeah, I had cassettes. Yeah. Um, actually, but, my first one I got by myself was Vanilla Ice. Yeah, yes, I, I think we need to end this project. <laughs> like, I, I mean, hey man, I bought Vanilla Ice and MC Hammer. MC with... Hammer's from Oakland. I mean, hey. he's cheeseball as hell, but you know what? He's from <laughs> Oakland, so I have to support him a little bit. Yeah. Hey, those are the first two cassettes I I bought way back, way back. Oh my back. god. Um. Okay. So the loud muffling noise is me choking a motherfucker out. <laughs> um. Anyways. Too cold. Too cold. <laughs> All right. Oh yeah. Well, I just, I, I just did that. <laughs> okay. You could like edit in some sort of like, I don't know, some sound, some like a gimp noise from. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways. Anyway, public enemy. Public enemy word. And it, it so thematically, it, it fit with this deconstruction of narratives and, and, and kind of identifying yourself within a, a predominant narrative that is in, 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 inequitable. And Rage Against the Machine is certainly about that. Uh, one thing that I really value about political music is a tradition of coded language, um, meaning I guess the first political music um, well, I mean, that's an inaccurate statement. I mean, there's music has always been inherently political. It's a matter of what side of the aisle. But the first political music I think I value within the context of, of my background and the communities that I see myself as a humble ally of um, would probably have been slave hymns. Um, and, and slave hymns were sung by, you know, African-American diaspora surviving through slavery and resisting. And to the to an overseer, they would have been like, you know, good wholesome Christian songs, but really they were coded language about rejecting and fighting and resisting the institutions that justified slavery. And, I mean, that's kind of the first American political music. I mean, there's all sorts of styles. I mean, um, the song La Bamba by Richie Valens or Ricardo Venezuela, um, Valenzuela, um, is, is, is derivative of a style of Mexican music called San Rancho. Uh, I might be I might be identifying that wrong, but it's the same thing. It, it started from indigenous and African slaves, and yes, there was African slavery in Mexico. Um, it started as resistance to those institutions as well, and, and the song La Bamba is a, a very, no pun intended, whitewashed version of that genre of music. Um, and and a lot of good music starts as music of resistance in communities that are resisting, and then becomes through time 
filtered and sanitized and whitewashed. And I mean, most people who, you know, I'm not a fan of country music 1%, but most people who listen to country wouldn't know that um, the banjo, which is common in a lot of bluegrass and country music, is an instrument that was actually made by African diasporic slaves originally. If people don't know that because people have wandered too far from the original source, so to speak. But nonetheless, to backtrack a little, Public Enemy was the first group I encountered that was about rejecting those narratives and resisting and very much in your face. And then, I mean, musically, there's, there's, they took a very different approach to hip hop. There was more kind of a wall of sound approach and they sampled a lot of, a lot of heavier music within the bomb squad was the production crew and Terminator X was the DJ. And they sampled a lot of music that uh, was heavier and it made a very different sound than a lot of eighties hip hop. I mean, a contemporary would have been Kara's one and, and the boom bap sound and it, it which I enjoy tremendously, but Public Enemy Sound was very different and, and stood out to me and actually lends itself very thematically in terms of the construct and the music and the lyrical content to Rage Against the Machine. They're like a natural predecessor, and of course, Zach cites Chuck D as, um, as a heavy influence on him. And just to say, Chuck D is now currently touring with the real... Prophets of Rage, who I saw in concert last August in Toronto, and it was awesome. I just thought I'd note that. Um, and they're going to tour again next year, although all the dates I've seen are in Europe and South America. Um, but nonetheless. They'll, they'll be doing North, uh, North American leg. That's where, where a lot of the money is. So. Well, Justin's going to go with me this time. Yes. Last time I could not. Yes. So uh, other groups I love are very thematically tied. Um, I guess Public Enemy and Rage Against the Machine would have been the first two. Then there's an MC from Northern California, Oakland, and then the wider San Francisco Bay Area named Paris. Favorite track of his is called Bush Killer. And there's Dead Prez, um, who's still around, although they've kind of changed in form a lot. And then I've come to really love Saul Williams, um, who was a poet and MC and actor. He's been in a few movies. He was in the movie K-Pax, and his character name in that movie? Ernie. <laughs> <laughs> um, yep. I, I actually... K-Pax is one of the first... DVDs I, I bought. It was also in a movie Slam, which is about Sam, Slam poetry, which is which is quite quite a powerful movie. Um, and then I really like Run the Jewels a great deal. Um, and, and so I guess most of the groups are hip hop oriented, but they're not like it's more alternative style hip hop. Uh, Sal Williams's music is is very genre crossing. I mean Trent Reznor produced one of his albums, and there's a lot of more pop sounding stuff, a lot of spoken word over simple beats. He's done tracks with a wide variety of artists. He's on a, a new track that just came out, I believe, last month called um, The Virus with uh, the indigenous DJ collective from Ottawa, a tribe called Red. And quite frankly, it's it's one of the most powerful pieces of art that has come out in contrast to the current political climate. There's a lot of images in it that reference the um, the Access Pipeline protests in, 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 the, in the Dakotas. And the Standing Rock, Rock Reservation, and, and it's it's an incredible piece that I think brings together very well all the feelings about that. We are not a conquered people, you know. Um, I would recommend that to anyone. And A Tribe Called Red did a track recently called R.E.D. with uh, Yasing Bay, or Most Deaf, and an, an MC from Toronto whose name escapes me, quite frankly, and I apologize for that. That, I mean, what I forgot is better than whatever they remembered, you know. It, it, the language in there is just so, so good. But yeah, that, that history of coded language is in even rage that's so overt. I mean, the track, Calm Like a Bomb, I'm walking God like a dog, my narrative fearless. World War returns to burn like Baldwin home from Paris. Most people wouldn't get what that's a reference to, I don't think. And, and James Baldwin, one of the many politically resistant African-American authors, um, was a gay black man from Harlem. 
and there's a long history of African-American artists. He's the one who put the book out in the 30s that kind of started... You're in... thinking of Revolta Emerson. Okay. Close. Close. Same community, yeah. though. Okay. No, I'm just... Like Harlem, African-American resisting community. Yeah. So close. Yeah. I might have misstated his name, too. Apologies. Um, but nonetheless, uh, James Baldwin was one of the many, many African-American artists who actually fled to Paris. There's a huge tradition... Actually, uh, Josephine Baker is a famous example from the 20s and 30s, but there's a huge tradition of African-American artists going to Paris, um, and James Baldwin did. And when he returned from Paris, he wrote The Fire Next Time, which is essentially a couple of essays, one of which is a letter to his 14-year-old nephew. And it's about, it's about resisting, again, the pejorative predominant narratives of inequity and defining yourself within the context of a wider society that believes those narratives and about how much of a struggle that's going to be. And they hate you, and you have to resist that and not internalize it and, and, and fight those narratives. So, word, return, word war returns to burn like Baldwin home from Paris. That line right there is so powerful and so just well-constructed and references all these things where you have to be really in tune with where Zach in that case was coming from, but where the community of resistance is coming from to truly understand. And that's what I mean by coded language. Like, you have to really be absorbed into it to really to really engage with it. And that's what makes it so powerful for me. And, you know, calm like a bomb. The riot is the rhyme of the unheard. You know, that's that's the side of Dr. King. The most people like to whitewash Dr. King and talk, you know, peaceful how, nonviolence. How, how the hell can you whitewash Dr. King? I'm just wondering about this because... Peaceful nonviolent resistance. Yeah. They don't talk about the radical Dr. King that challenged the institutions of poverty and challenged the challenged capitalism itself right before he's assassinated during the height of the or the beginning height of the Vietnam War. Yeah. That's when he was assassinated. There's a sanitized version of Dr. King that is less radical. It's like, you know, we shall overcome. I, and I'm not diminishing any of that. That is not my aim for these statements, but rather there's a sanitized version of him that is presented in history and in kind of the wider mainstream celebrations of his life around Dr. King Day about, you know, we shall overcome. We have a degree of racial improvement now. And, and it's really about assaging the, the feelings of people who are tied to these narratives. But there is a much more radical side to Dr. King that doesn't get talked about. And the riot is the rhyme of the unheard comes from Dr. King, which is totally conflicts this image of him that's presented. Right. He was a radical. Nonviolence was a tool that he used. Social justice requires different tools in different contexts. That was the tool he was famous for. Yeah. But that nonviolence wasn't the end-all be-all. No, that wasn't the last thing because there is a time to rise up. A revolutionary banging on my adversaries. I love Dr. King, but violence might be necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow. Yeah, Ernest, Ernest likes to likes to uh, spit every every so often. And I it, do do and that, it, and it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got this coworker, and I can't really talk about my job, but he he often makes fun of me for uh, the I guess difference in persona, the contrast in persona of when I when I when I drop a verse, shall we say? Um, but anyways, yeah, I don't do it a lot. I don't really have a, a space no, for it's, it. It's like seeing me in my shirt and tie at work. I'm a I'm a restaurant manager. You see me, I'm all smiles. And then driving home from work, I'm screaming screaming Ozzy Osbourne lyrics <laughs> while, while drive, drive, driving home and pull, pulling up beside the young uh, uh, a, a car car full of younger uh, younger younger <laughs> ladies. I should I should just say, and they're 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 staring at me. Hey, Catherine, what's up? <laughs> So I just get louder. 
I just uh, turn it up. I just start screaming later. So I was, I, I lifted weights this morning, and I was like, I was in my car outside of the gym. My gym's in the supermarket, right? Yeah. Um, and I was listening to Zarface really loud, and I'll let you Google Zarface. They're cool. They're fun. And there was this elderly couple getting out of the car beside me, just looking. And I'm just like, you know what? <laughs> like, just deal. Give them, give them the thumbs up. <laughs> yeah. All right. Before we get like uh, too much further, there's a piece I should, I, I really meant to mention within the context of the explanation of the Malcolm X tattoo uh, when I talked about the potential for cultural appropriation. Um, but one thing that I think anyone such as myself who at least designs to be an ally of marginalized communities has to address their own privilege and has to own their own privilege. And what I mean by that is, you know, I'm phenotypically white. I am a heterosexual male. I have have relatively upper middle class background in terms of access to education and such. And those those items all amount to a degree of, a significant degree of privilege. You know, I'm not profiled by police when I walk down the street. There's gonna be no police officer who's like who's like, hmm, his facial features look reminiscent of Aboriginal people of northern Scandinavia. No. That's not gonna happen. I'm not I'm not marginalized. I'm not targeted by vicious institutions like systemic racism that, you know, profiles Middle Eastern people at the border or, or profiles young black men on the street or, or what have you. And I'm a male and, and, and you know, I, I run a lot. And when I run, I never see female runners alone. I either have a dog or a partner. And I, you know, that's representation of male privilege is, is because the women are the vast majority of victims of violent crime throughout North America, throughout the world. And I'm not. So I, have the, I can run in the woods at night by myself with no issue. So, and it's really cool to run in the woods at night because the snow like glows and you can see it's really cool in the winter at least um, in the summer I need a light but um, that those are representations of privilege you know I never grew up I mean I had a lot of diversity in my childhood but I never grew up wanting for food you know or anything like that maybe wanting for well-cooked food <laughs> but yes um, and it's something that in deconstructing these narratives, I have to acknowledge and own. Um, and frankly, the, the best feature of an ally is humility and the ability to listen. One of uh, I have a degree in Aboriginal Studies. I have a couple degrees. And, um, which are? Um, from the school in California I went to, I have a dual major, which is liberal arts and humanities, and then I have a, a, a English lit uh, major. And then from when I went to school at U of T, University of Toronto, I have a double major in equity studies and, um, and Aboriginal studies. And then also I did some studying at uh, Waterloo for a uh, bachelor of social work. Um, so, yeah. Um, but in the context of equity studies, by the way, is the, the study of, of injustice and resistance to injustice, social equity. Um, but within the context of my Aboriginal studies degree, there was a, I remember a lot of times there was open class discussion. Um, and I feel a lot of the time white people within that context failed to check their own privilege. And there was a lot of times where I witnessed well-meaning white people taking over the conversation and taking over the narrative. And in that context, when you're talking about Aboriginal experiences, you know, someone who's non-Aboriginal who sees himself as an ally needs to shut up and listen. And it's not that you can't say anything, but I mean, shut up and listen is a little harsh, but... No, you... it's uh, true because a lot of people, that's the biggest problem I find. People don't mm -hmm. listen. Yeah, no, people don't listen. They want to be heard, but they won't listen to themselves. 
and, and professionally, I've been involved in work with a lot of women shelters. Um, I don't really want to go into specifics, but within, when, you know, as a male, within the context of discussing domestic violence and within the context of discussing disenfranchisement of women such that there's a significant need for women's shelters, I need to listen. And that is part of owning your own privilege, is knowing when you need to listen. And I think that that's something that may get lost within the, the discussion earlier I had about the Malcolm X tattoo. That's something that might get lost, is, is the need to listen and the need to own your own privilege. Um, yeah, so those are those are things that need to be discussed. But where were we? We were talking about music, too. Um, yep. And, and dropping a verse and, and all that. Top five. Top five what? Musicians that have currently in their, in their influenced you. Because well, for me, personally, it's always changing. Oh, it's it evolving. Depends. It's always evolving. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong, I still love corn. Yeah. I haven't put a corn CD in in about five or six years, but when Blind comes on, on the song, mm-hmm. on when Blind comes on the radio, I rock out in the, in the car because sure. it's part of part It's of part of your lexicon. It's yeah. part of your own personal lexicon. The list is ever-evolving. Like I mentioned before, Chuck D and Public Enemy, um, Rage Against the Machine. I really like Zach Taroka's um, solo stuff as well which is not as widely heard like one day as a lion and and some uh, he's done a lot of random tracks like yeah I'm dj shadow so and trent reznor yeah. and, and 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 lp produced a recent one uh, digging for windows which i thought was quite brilliant mm-hmm. um although it's i it there, i remember seeing a comment that it was like an lp throwaway beat it, it's dead i don't think it's a throwaway beat but i think the beat is very much a departure from a lot of the stuff lp is currently el producto is currently doing and again, dead prez. Like, also, the beat has to be... Has to match the artist. Has to match... Yeah. yeah. Has to match the artist. Because yes. Zach isn't a new guy coming up rapping. No. Like, I don't want to say Eminem, but like he has a very definitive style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's a very fast, fast rapper, where Zach is methodical. Well, he can go really fast. He can do really fast beats. But I find, personally, I like his stuff when... He's keeping to the track when he doesn't go off it. Mm-hmm. Like there's that's his strong suit as a as a rapper. I I think you feel feel free to dis dis or agree, but that's just that's just me. Sure. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, well, I mentioned before, Dead Prez is a significant influence. There was a period, a long period, of roughly a ten year period in my life where I was a vegan, uh, and Dead Prez rapped about being a vegan and I, about. Yeah, I remember the vegan days. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still a vegetarian. Yeah. Um, Which is cool. I've adjusted to be this the family. Justin get, has the family adjusted. Get, the family get-togethers. <laughs> I had to figure out how the hell am I going to get this guy to eat something. <laughs> oh, I, I eat. Because, hey, I... People think I, I don't I, eat. I, I eat. No, no. It's, I learned because of you. Right yeah, now, sure. in my own household, we do a lot more tofu, a lot more beans. Mm-hmm. We have reduced our meat, meat in, intake. Don't get me wrong. It's, I'd say we have meat um, two to three times a week now because mm-hmm. we're more tofu and lentils and beans. And it's just what the kids like. Well, it's, like, it's probably easier, too. Yeah, we do a vegetarian taco taco, taco soup. My the daughter's favorite food it. in the world is bacon. Because oh. <laughs> it's delicious. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing wrong with bacon. Oh, well, she's a, a strong child. We'll just say that. She's like her mama. <laughs> You know, she says she's like me. I, I just want to throw that out there. Oh, I know. Um, <laughs> but she's a strong child. I'll just leave yeah. it at that. Um, but Dead Prez wrapped about being vegan, but also wrapped about a lot of the deconstructing of the narratives that I value so much. And then one of the MCs from Dead Prez, Stick, 
he did an album called The Workout, which is about working out, which I, I for me, working out and being fit is almost, it, I, I liken it to being my religion. It's it's where it's I go. It's a big part of your life is yes. where, you, where, you, where your mind is centered. It's where, it's like thinking. where I go, is, go to be absolved from my indeficiencies, I guess, in, in terms of my own um, being, you know? Yeah, but anyhow. So Dead Prez is a huge artist, I think. Although they, like Paris, who I mentioned too, a lot of the stuff suffers from um, kind of rush production, I think, a lot more detail to the musical side, I, I, I think would have benefited them. Although Dead Prez is, you know, Let's Get Free, the first album is just freaking, oh my God. You because know? I, I find with all artists, the first albums are tend to be their best. It depends. Because they've been... What I find, they've been putting this album together their entire lives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if they're 20, 25 years old, when their first album comes out, that's their life's work for 25 years. Yeah. Where, hey, okay, we need a second album out in 18 months. And it's 18 months worth of work, or if yeah. at best. Yeah. Um, there's a few groups that I think I would digress from that. Like Public Enemy's first album, Bum Rush's Show, was was more in kind of that like boom bap style sound and they didn't really develop this harder wall of sound mechanism until until it, it takes a nation and then all this back and fear of a black planet but um, also they did put out one of the greatest hip-hop albums of all time which one are you talking about um god fear fear fear, fear of, of a black fear, planet yes, thank you yeah that's one of my favorite welcome that to is, the terra dome that's my favorite public enemy album i have that i think i actually have the cd in my car I think, <laughs> and yes, I do listen to Public Public and Enemy. En 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 They're not one of my favorites, but I do. Well, I do really, really like it. It's just flavor, flavor drives me nuts. <laughs> it's just every yeah. so often you just Chuck D is amazing, and then yeah, flavor, flavor. I'm like, shut up. I'm not a fan of that guy so much. Chuck D did a solo album, um, autobiography of Mr. Chuck. I think it came out like '97. Yeah. 96 97 somewhere in there i think it's quite actually quite good um i think it's an album that's that's um slept on a lot as it were um i don't think a lot of people know of it but i i i, I think i have that on cd somewhere too but anyways um saul williams is an artist who i value tremendously i met him very briefly he's physically very small by the way god you see people on on but I think me and you forget how big we actually are. Some well, I'm, I'm not that big, dude. You're six foot. You're you I'm... have to walk sideways through most doors. <laughs> it's like, and I'm I'm a big I'm a big boy big boy at my well, myself. It's just appetite's five five eight. Yeah, and this, and well, I tend to. Well, I don't even just mean height, but like very diminutive. This is totally tangential, I guess. I don't know. It's just shocking, um, shocking when you you meet your idols like. Um, I, I, I always have this fear of letdown. Yeah. Like, this is not... Like, uh, Ward Churchill. I met him, I think, on four different occasions. Ward Churchill is now the kind of, I guess, shamed faux-Aboriginal um, author and professor from the University of Colorado who, who got himself in trouble for some statements he made. And then it kind of... There were some academic integrity issues. And, and I value a lot of his work, but there's a lot of questions around him at this point or not even questions, but kind of very negative observations of him. But I met him on four times. One time I peed next to him in a urinal. Um, yeah. <laughs> and he's... <laughs> of all the things. <laughs> well, like, yeah, it oh, just yeah, kind of happened. Like, um, hey, and hey. this was at in Toronto one time when I saw him speak. And there he was, and there I was, and here we are. And I'm not going to look to my left because that would be weird. 
But yeah. Uh, now the big question, did you look? No. no. Okay. <laughs> There's also an actor who, this was so bad. His name's Daryl Dennis. Um, he used to host on host on Canada's APTN uh, Bingo, in a, Bingo in a Movie. And there was one time I had a class with him and I honestly didn't initially place who he was. And then we go to the washroom on break and we're like washing our hands and I'm like, man, you look really familiar. And he just looks at me and smiles and maybe you'll figure it out. I'm like, okay. I didn't think much of it. And then I see him on TV and I'm like, oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> he probably hears that all the time. <laughs> yep. But anyways. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's funny stuff. But, yeah, so, um, talking about Cell Williams. And then there's an MC from Oakland who isn't that, well, from Northern California, he has some connections to Oakland, who isn't that well-known named Paris. Um, the Devil Made Me Do It and Sleeping With The Enemy were the first two albums. I really, really like Sleeping With The Enemy, although there's some rushed production values, I think. And there's a, a track on that called Bush Killer, which I think is a very visceral and earnest response to kind of the extenuate you know extension of the first bush presidency the extension of reaganomics that was the bush, first bush presidency and, and you know kind of this the trickle down trickle down economics trickle down economic theory that really disenfranchised further disenfranchised a lot of people and yeah stupidest thing i've ever heard of um that's my own personal and the theory gets recycled a lot too it's just if we cut taxes you know things will flow better if we cut taxes on the rakes and it never ever ever works because cutting taxes only affects the rich yeah and and because hey i'm paying a hundred thousand dollars in taxes oh i'm paying ten ten thousand dollars in taxes and i can barely barely pay the ten thousand in taxes a year well from now on you're going to pay eight thousand dollars in taxes and at first you're like, oh my god, two thousand dollars, and then you're thinking, oh, the one guy. You have to pay more for services now. Yeah, yeah. Or it's like, All the oh, roads are toll roads. Yeah. Hey, I gotta pay wherever I go now. Yeah. yeah. That two grand dries up real, real quick. Yeah, and it, it becomes a self-enforcing thing. However, I mean, it actually relates. I'm hesitant to talk about this because I feel very strongly, but it, it relates to the Trump phenomenon. It, it, like you've got a whole mass of disenfranchised people. And he appeals to their ignorance and their prejudice, and then it gets elected. But he is of the establishment that they are disenfranchised from. And basically, he's, he's playing a game of point at all those Mexicans, point at those black people, you know, point at women who have abortions, point at, point at all this. And, like, there's not a real... He gets people to vote against their self-interest by appealing to ignorance and prejudice. And yeah, the fact that that won, quite frankly, is very, very jarring. Although it didn't, I mean... He actually lost a popular vote by almost and around 3 million votes. Yeah. But What bothers me is the huge percentage of people in the states who just didn't vote. Well, I think that number is misleading. There's a lot of people who aren't eligible. Um, and in the United States, voting is not made easy. Um, frankly, I, I think uh, it should be a holiday, to be frank with you. Yeah, um, it should be, should be a holiday. Like in Canada, if I'm working a 12-hour hour shift, they have to pay me. Mm-hmm. and let me go and vote. Yeah. It's not a, oh, yeah, uh, try to figure it out when you're, no, no. They, like, uh, I think it was a few years ago, I left on the clock, voted, came back. Mm-hmm. And they're, they kind of made a big deal about it, and I'm like, you're making me work a 12-hour shift. It's the law, motherfucker. On a voting day. It's the law. You guys will be fine. I'm going. Yeah. And I wasn't the only one who went either. Yeah. Because my boss actually voted earlier in the day, Mm-hmm. Well, he was on the o'clock, so he couldn't say anything about it. You know, I, I, I'm not a Canadian citizen. I'm a permanent resident, and perhaps I should uh, 
become one so I can vote in Canada too. I could vote in both countries. Yeah, well you should. Yeah, I suppose so. Probably more viable at this point. Yeah, because you I don't think you leave, you're going back to the States no, any, any, any I don't time plan soon. to live in the U.S. again. I, I do miss California tremendously. Yeah, um, uh, I have been there. It's beautiful. Yeah, no, tremendous. It is absolutely one of the most beautiful places I've been. Where was it? Mon the Monterey Cliffs? Uh, yeah, we were in Monterey, Monterey Bay yeah. area, Big Sur area. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. All right. All right, gonna, another question. Going to start uh, actually wrapping this up. Ernest, Ooh, snap, Ernest, he said wrapping this up. Yeah, Ernest will be will be back. But I do got to ask him Gilmy's quick 10 questions. Uh, I'm doing this now, so uh, just shoot shoot the answer at, at at me quick. Okay. You can rhyme if if it's a uh, you got to rhyme well, a few things off. Okay. We'll, we'll kind of ex, ex, explain explain the answer if you want. I got about 10 here. Oh, you're an 80s kid like me, so a couple of these you will uh, like. All right, first one. Dogs or cats? Dogs, but I'm not against cats. Iron Maiden or Judas Priest? Um, Public Enemy sampled both, but probably Iron Maiden more, so I'll go with that for my answer. Yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a Priest guy. Just uh, Rob, <laughs> Rob Halford's Howard it cannot be beat. It's just Fair enough. one of my favorite singers. Uh, G.I. Joe or Transformers? Transformers, dude. Not even close. Oh, yeah. <laughs> dude, so one year, I think it was grade two, I got a bunch of G.I. Joe for Christmas, and I burned them in the barbecue to protest war. <laughs> that honest, I swear to you, that's the truth. See, I I played with GI Joes as a kid, and I played with. I burned them motherfuckers in the barbecue. Yeah, this one, North or South? North. Justice League or the uh, Avengers? Justice League. Chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. Dark chocolate. Original recipe. The indigenous Mexican recipe. With uh, cocoa beans and chili. We can add chili. Oh yeah, no, it's I I prefer I prefer it with the the look. Oh, I like chocolate, like mole. Yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking mm -hmm. about. A little bit of chocolate with it, a little bit of well, chili. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's mole too, which is a chocolate-based sauce, right? Yeah, which is wonderful. Yeah, summer or winter? I actually, I mean, for someone who grew up in California, I really don't mind winter, but I don't like driving in the snow. I don't think anyone does. I'm kind of neutral though. Yeah. Uh, planes or boats? What the fuck? Exactly. Which one do you do you prefer riding riding in? I've been in planes more, but I I had a good time whale watching that one time. Yeah, that was so actually really really good. You're one of the few people who didn't get sick. I think I was the only one who didn't throw up. Yeah, me. Okay. Yeah, I, I think me and me and you, because me and Catherine took gravel because we both know we're prone to motion sickness. Oh no, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. Get out. The boat starts rocking around. It's uh, everyone yeah. got sick. Oh yeah. Uh, books or movies? Books. Uh, uh, boxers or briefs? I prefer briefs. Um, chafing, dude. Yeah. And last one. I know you don't drink, but beer or wine? Ah, I've never had a sip of alcohol in my life. That and you know that's well. I'm. Um, actually, I have made a dish one time where there was a teaspoon in it. Oh fuck. So wine. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I guess, I guess, um, I guess we're all spider leg eaters. How many spiders crawl in our mouths? Oh yeah, three. Three to fifteen a, 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 a year <laughs> depends who you who you uh, who you talk to. So spiders or cockroaches, Justin? Um, I hate roaches. All I'll right, be honest with you. I have no problem with having a fist-sized spider in my hand crawling up my arm. I'm not afraid of spiders. I'm really not. Roaches? I don't like them. I don't know what it is. Something like I, I've held giant roaches before, and I just don't like these things. Like I just hair back of my hair goes up. 
like on the back back of my neck here just I don't like them but I'm also petrified of birds so who knows okay that's a little strange yeah um well I had that uh, parrot growing up that, uh, that attacked oh, me oh I've heard day. that story yeah. yeah it wasn't like it wasn't a funny thing I have a fear of phobia of birds like I punched a pigeon <laughs> oh my god like it, it's out of nowhere I just throw a fit uh, downtown Toronto the pigeon flies at me, I should fucking punch it. And it's, I'm looking and, around going... And the funny thing I is... Didn't, I didn't mean to. The funny thing, this was two weeks ago. <laughs> well, I was there there a couple weeks ago, but no. No, this happened years, years ago. My, my whole bird thing, I can actually walk towards geese now. And my kids know I have, have an issue with birds, but they don't know why. Or what's going on, or why I won't go and feed the ducks. <laughs> I guess Thanksgiving turkey has a bigger meaning to you. Oh, I enjoy turkey, yes. <laughs> it is delicious. Oh, that's one thing about running in kind of the sticks in California sometimes is there'll be these places where there are massive populations of feral peacocks. True story. And you'll like run around the corner in the woods on this dirt trail, and they'll just, they'll just be a, a, a big male peacock with its feathers in full glory, just like, what? <laughs> you're not getting past what and you're like damn it i just want to get by you bird it, it, yeah sometimes you just run up in the bush and go around it because you just don't want to deal with like an angry feral peacock you sit there going what oh what you know i've seen peacocks at the toronto zoo but they're like i'm your friend feed me yeah 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 i've run into wild turkeys too that are just simply not very smart like single track trail and they'll like see you and start running the other way but they're going down the single track the way you're going so it's like you're chasing them until they have a heart attack and then they cut off in the bush like 10 minutes later and you're like you could have just did that before i wasn't gonna chase I, you I, I i don't want to chase your bird I'm, yeah i really don't want to touch a wild turkey thank you oh they are delicious though well wild turkeys are smaller than probably the turkeys you eat yeah no no wild turkeys are i i have had I have had some beer for. Um, the meat's a little more, little more gamey, I'd say. I would imagine so, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, what else you got here? That's about it. Um, God, yeah. we filled up an hour. Oh, yeah, and we, I know me and you, we can just keep on there going, but that's for next time. I just want to say thanks. Thanks for, for coming over and doing this. It's been an interesting com conversation. I gotta stop saying that word, man. <laughs> Miigwech, kiwapame, hasta luego. Next time. Yep, and I will talk to everyone everyone later. Thanks. Hey guys, I just want to say thanks for listening again to another one one of my podcasts. It's really fun fun doing it. I'm really enjoying talking talking to people. And I'm having fun. Hopefully you're you're enjoying listening to it. And just I'm actually getting texts from Ernest think asking what I thought about the interview. I thought it was really, really well done. If you want, want want to give us a few shares on social media, that would, would be great, guys. I'm really enjoying doing this. I'm having fun talking about interesting things with interesting people. That's what this was all about. And you know what? I'm, I think I'm going to keep this keep this going for a while. Uh, the more I do it, the the more I do it, the more I'm learning. And that's why I'm here, I'm here doing it. Because I think everyone has a story story to tell. Whether I fully agree with it or not, it's it's good good to talk to people and i think the world needs more of that every single day because if everyone actually listens to each other and just gets all the bullshit out out of the way and just realize that everyone's just a a human human being eh, the place would be be a uh, better better off that's eh, just me and my mind thinking to would would they
Once again, if you want to get in touch with me, it's justinmgilmet at gmail.com. And I'm working on setting up a Facebook page, working on getting all the rest of this going. And thanks for listening, guys. Thanks.